The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Boston on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, the coronavirus continued to be one of the biggest stories weighing on global markets. The outbreak accelerated outside the epicenter in China, with South Korea reporting a surge in infections. While authorities in Beijing adjusted their number of cases for the third time this month, raising even more questions about their methodology and reliability of the data. But still, the global health emergency isn't showing up yet if you look at typical risk assets. The U.S. markets are still hovering around all-time highs, so we talked about this with Hans Humes, chairman, CEO, and founding partner at Greylock Capital. We started by asking Hans where he expected the virus impact to show up in other asset classes. It's an interesting split because you get the same kind of, you know, how far out the risk spectrum you get. And the riskier assets will, you know, be under some kind of pressure. The biggest thing that we look at, though, is the slowdown, potential slowdown in trade. Um, And you start taking a look at some of the shipping indices and so forth. Um, you know, clearly, none of us know where this right. crisis is going to go. Um, even having it being declared a pandemic, uh, the impact of coronavirus may be more psychological than actually, you know, in terms of how many people actually get sick and die. So it's the, it's the sense of risk that people have that affects right. the psychology of the market. And what we've seen is more inflows into the safe haven assets right. in the fixed income area. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, interestingly enough, in the more speculative things, you're seeing, you know, quite a bit of dollar strength, and, which will put some pressure on right. things like Turkey. But there's enough ability to diversify the anal- analytics now get to the point where they look at the credit risk of the actual country yeah. and the potential impact that there may be from the slowdown in so trade. So when we talk about that, I mean, definitely with regards to the sentiment and the psychological aspects, you're seeing that already show up with regards to travel and tourism. But we've also seen some of the central banks react, Malaysia, Thailand, I think, Indonesia. We got forward guidance also from Singapore. So there seems to be this idea, particularly in some of those Asian countries that are very much connected to China trade, uh, that they are willing, that the central banks there are willing to do whatever they can do um, to sort of, I guess, to keep their economy stable. I guess the question is, is that going to be enough, particularly if you're an investor in local currency bonds? Well, I, listen, I, I, I think you put your finger on it because yeah. what the central banks are doing are trying to take the steps to reverse the potential psychological impact of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. They're, they're looking to say that they will do, inject the liquidity, do whatever they can to keep the economies going. But if you talk to people on the ground in you know, some of the more developed markets, it's being contained. But, you know, I've got friends in Cambodia, for example, right. and things are just at a standstill. Oh, wow. They don't know what to do. So we're going to see some big impact on some of these economies. Again, we don't know the, the scope of what where this 
you know, where the crisis is going to go, but that there will be slowdowns in local economies that are dependent on Chinese tourism is a foregone conclusion. I applaud the central banks for stepping in front of it and doing what they can to offset some of the psychological damage. And this gets to your point, again, about the just the fear, the psychology. There aren't that many cases yet in uh, Cambodia, but the uh, capability, presumably, of the healthcare system, of the uh, ability for the government, just sort of the capacity of the public sector to address something, has got to be much but worse. But they're also than very China. dependent on right. Chinese tourists. And then there isn't, you know, there's a big slowdown yeah. in Chinese, you know, taking tours in, in Asia. In terms of risk assessment, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I jump out of airplanes for fun. Um, <laughs> and I have to do accurate assessments of probability. If you take a look at the what, number what of cases. What are the numbers? Do <laughs> you have those? I, you know, <laughs> we, 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 we can talk about it off, okay. off air. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it really is a psychology game because if right. you look at the actual numbers, yeah. the infections and the wave of the infections, this is something with coordinated action right. will be contained. Right. Um, it is the impact on the economies. It's the holding right. back, the I'm not going to book a cruise ship right. that's going to make the difference. Right. I'm not going to take a beach vacation. I'm not going to leave China and take a beach vacation in Cambodia that will have impact. But with regards to sort of the investment picture, I mean, do you think that the potential fallout here is going to have any real material sort of slowdown in, I guess, the appetite that we've seen for uh, emerging market debt, emerging market stocks, emerging market currencies? Because those were kind of high flying for a while, at least heading into this year. Right it's, now, do we have any sense that that's going to be interrupted for a prolonged period of time? Uh, again, people yeah. who are heavily dependent on trade, it's yeah. going to have an impact. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, investors are, are sophisticated enough to focus on the stories. Sure. So if you take a look at a Turkey, you take a look at an Argentina, you take a look at a Brazil, yeah. you, people are making rational investment decisions based on the circumstances of those countries. We aren't at the point now where it's full risk off, and I don't anticipate we'll get there. Then we switch gears to talk Argentina with Hans. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva spoke about the country's path to growth with Bloomberg on Sunday. Broadly speaking, uh, we are very supportive of the uh, uh, commitment of this uh, government to stabilize the economy, return to growth. We do understand uh, the necessity uh, to look at the, uh, that uh, burden carefully, this the job of the government, not of the IMF, but we are very supportive of the government doing what it would take to restore growth and also all they do to protect the most vulnerable uh, people. This came right before the IMF gave Argentina the backing it needed to hit their bondholders hard. In a statement Wednesday, the IMF called the debt load, quote, unsustainable and said the private creditors would need to make meaningful contribution for the country to regain its footing. Hans has a wealth of experience in dealing with countries in distressed debt situations, so he asked what it would take to get Argentina off this, quote, unsustainable path and into a sustainable position. Well, I mean, they could just write off the debt that they owe the IMF, and then they'd be sustainable. Of course, the IMF is not in the habit of writing off what they lend. Um, But uh, I was a bit amused by the comment of the IMF to say that the debt of Argentina was unsustainable because they're the ones who have the biggest block of maturities coming in that sort of, you know, the next few years, 48 billion. And that's actually a big part of the problem. So having gone through Argentina back in 2005 when I was the co-chairman and having gone through Greece, there are plenty of ways to do this. Um, 
What makes debt unsustainable is the cost of refinancing. It's not right. the aggregate num- um, amount of debt. Well, well, it's not the debt to GDP. Well, well, this is what right. I'm interested in because, I mean, you kind of make the quip that if they, the IMF just got rid of it, that would make it sustainable. They, I was trying to make in, a joke. But. Well, but back in July, I mean, they basically, they, you know, they called it sustainable. That was the last credit review. And I'm just wondering, I mean, what happened over the past, you know, nine, ten months or so that caused them to go to sustainable to unsustainable? Um, that's a fair question. Yeah. And it really was... Um, the IMF was injecting a lot of liquidity into the system and hoping for a rebound. Argentina went through a very tough drought. Mm-hmm. And then after uh, the PASO, which was sort of this preliminary first-round election, mm-hmm. the markets kind of panicked. Christina yeah. fernandez Kirchner was the VP candidate, and there's a big sell-off in the bond prices. Um, the economy in Argentina also took quite a bit of, of a hit. So in terms of just, you know, I can go through all the technical sure. numbers, but yeah. basically it's slowed down enough that there isn't enough productivity in the economy to service the debt load that they have. Yeah. Now, the solution, what the solution is, and a bit of the standoff now is, you know, in broad, creditors are organized. There are a number of different sort of coalitions that are working. We're waiting for the Argentine side to organize and bring in advisors to have a, a, a good dialogue. Uh, Martin Guzman, who's the economy minister, is somebody who I knew before he became economy minister, yeah. and he's an academic expert in the subject. Right. Uh, they'll need to have some pragmatic guidance on how to do this. This is going to be a combination of extension of maturities, reductions of coupons, and possibly a reduction in the overall debt stock. But Martin Guzman has publicly said the point that I made before, that it's the cost of refinancing. And if Argentina can return to the markets yeah. in an 18- to 24-month period then this debt load may be sustainable. But the IMF will have to make some extensions and maturities too. So I know you probably want to ask some more, but what, it's very important to look what happened with Greece. The private sector took a 53.5 cent principal haircut. Mm. Now, Argentina is nowhere that serious at this point. Um, the official sector took no write-off, but the ESM, the European institutions, pushed the debt out, reduced the coupon, so that they gave effectively the same kind of net present value reduction. Mm -hmm. So balancing the books of Argentina right now will not be that difficult if the government and some of the people making the decisions don't make unforced errors. Well, that's, I mean, you make a really important point, which is that you could cut the debt or you could cut the debt, and that you can cut the debt by just sort of extending it, and so the debt stock stays the same size, but it becomes more fundable. But, of course, part of the issue with Argentina is credibility and uh, multiple bouts of this and the political environment and avoiding unforced errors. So you talk about going back to the market in 18 to 24 months. Is there going to be a market that wants to participate given what we've seen? Joe, that's an amazing question. And the answer is that um, there is a framework that has been blessed by the G20, the G20 principles for fair and transparent restructuring that has actually been mentioned in passing by a number of the people involved, in, in, you know, including some of the Argentines. If the Argentines execute a rational, reasonable restructuring with the yeah. official sector and the private sector to, that shows that they've left a template for growth to go forward, mm-hmm. I think that the market will be ready to lend them money again. So yeah. this is their opportunity. You know, nobody in Argentina asked to get in the situation they're in now. Right. Right. They didn't anticipate the reaction of the market to the elections. But if this is managed in a reasonable way, right. according to the template that was set up in reaction to what Argentina did 
in 2003, 2004, and 2005, right. I think that will help them get the confidence of the market back. There's another sort of big topic in debt circles now, and this is with Lebanon. They've got a big euro bond coming due uh, next month in March, billion plus. Everyone seems to be of the mindset that they could default on that. Do you think that Lebanon could find a way out of this without actually mm. having the bondholders take a bath on this? Well, on a mark-to-market basis, everybody's taking a bath already. I mean, right. you know, I think it, it's uh, that we finally, on the long end, crossed the 30-cent threshold. Mm-hmm. We had a bit of a bounce today in the short end. Yeah. Um, listen, the province of Buenos Aires in their negotiation kind of boxed themselves in and made a $250 million payment that I, right. yeah, I think creditors were willing to take a partial payment. Right. Um, Lebanon has started to be a bit transparent that they're going to need some form of debt reprofiling at the right. very least. If they've made that decision, and we know that they've been talking to financial advisors, in some cases some of the same financial advisors that Argentina has, um, it may not make sense to make that payment. Yeah. Maybe hold back and figure out what you do with your entire debt how, profile. How involved are you? How involved is Greylock in the conversation with regards to Lebanon? Um, they're... Uh, we are involved in, in a number of different conversations, and we've put out a bit of a call with some uh, people that we've worked with on a number of restructurings in Switzerland to start giving people a point of reference so that we can compare notes. Obviously, there's some elephants with very large holdings mm-hmm. that have been yeah. butting heads, and that's come out in the public. Uh, but we've gotten 40, 50 different groups of you know, mm. various holders just to discuss right. the options. Now, as a, somebody who does this almost for a living, you know, I'm not going to pretend to, peop- to people that this isn't going to be difficult, and we're never advocates for one person to get paid versus another. What we look for is a comprehensive solution. So Lebanon is in the same situation. Yeah. When they pick advisors, we'll have an, we will have a path forward. This week, investor concerns about the coronavirus also started extending to earnings. Goldman Sachs chief equity strategist warned that we may be underestimating the negative impact of the outbreak on results. So we caught up with someone else who shares that view. Eswar Prasad is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and he authored a recent New York Times op-ed saying, quote, a worldwide recession is not yet on the cards, but at a minimum, the added uncertainty will restrain investment and productivity, which already looked anemic in all major economies. We started by asking him if any such slowdown would be a temporary setback and if it could be made up. This is a short-term shock, certainly, but it's one that could have a longer-term effect. The context is very important here. Um, 2020 was supposed to be a year when there was at least a modest upswing in global growth, but the numbers that are coming out for the fourth quarter of 2019 from places such as Japan and Europe look very weak, so there is very little momentum going into 2020. And now in 2020, you have the shock. Now, One of the positive things that's happened at the end of 2019 was, of course, the U.S.-China trade deal, the phase one trade deal. And that was expected to take some of the uncertainty that has been restraining business investment off the table. Uh, But now that this coronavirus has injected a new dose of uncertainty into the global business environment, that may be offset. So what I really am concerned about is what this is going to mean for business sentiment and in turn for investment, which has lots of implications for long-term growth and productivity in all the major economies. So one of the things that some investors seem to be taking heart on is this idea that, yes, we don't know what the ultimate trajectory of 
the uh, virus is going to be. But we do know that, especially as it ends, we're going to see major stimulus expected out of uh, all, all the affected uh, countries. And people seem to be banking that, Singapore and China and so on. Are you skeptical that it will be particularly effective? And are you worried that regardless of the trajectory, there will be a lingering uh, shadow that we see over these economies for a long time to come as they, uh, as they claw their way out of this? Well, I think a lot of things uh, in there might, in fact, be true simultaneously. I think we will see something of a growth slowdown heading into the um, first and second quarters of this year. Um, I think we will see significant stimulus. Uh, we've already seen um, the Chinese central bank, for instance, injecting liquidity into the markets and trying to um, reduce the prime lending rate, which is what most businesses face in terms of their costs. Um, and this is certainly propping up uh, um, confidence in uh, financial markets. And it is sort of staggering that even though China is almost certainly going to take a hit in terms of growth, uh, the Shanghai Composite Index is down um, as of today, barely by 3% relative to um, a month ago. The S&P is not down by much at all relative to a month ago. The um, U.S. dollar CNY rate is down only about 2% uh, from a month ago. So financial markets seem to view all of the stimulus as very good. But of course, the problem is that a lot of the stimulus might not be very effective in terms of promoting growth. And more importantly, it's going to create financial system risks, especially in China. Yeah, well, expand on that a little bit more, too, because, I mean, there was this concern here that if you inject a little bit too much liquidity into the system, particularly at a time when China was already dealing with uh, certain companies that you know, may or may not uh, be able to pay their debts and other sort of uh, structural issues uh, within the sort of the, the corporate and financial sector, does this sort of create, I guess, the potential that you could end up getting some wobbles down the road that are kind of unrelated to the coronavirus. Now, this is where some structural problems that already exist in China are going to mean that the stimulus isn't going to be very effective and could create risks. So I mentioned the short-term shock having a long-term effect. One of the reasons I said that is because the companies that are going to be likely hurting because they don't have much of a financial cushion are the small enterprises, especially in the service sector, but in the private sector more broadly. These are the companies that are very important for employment growth and productivity growth in China. And the problem is that the formal banking system, which is largely state-owned, is not very good at funneling credit to these enterprises. Much of the credit in the economy in China still goes to the large state-owned enterprises, which are going to be fine. Um, so if the People's Bank of China continues to inject liquidity, you might well end up with a situation where you still have a lot of investment that is not very productive, but at the same time, the smaller firms that are the much more dynamic ones, but also much riskier, of course, are the ones that end up suffering um, a lot more. So you could end up with very little stimulus in terms of actual growth, productivity and employment and more financial risks for the future in an economy where there are already lots of significant uh, bad loan problems in the banking system. As well, even before the coronavirus, just due to the trade tensions, there was a lot of talk about a permanent change in the U.S.-China relationship and companies that uh, sourced products from China perhaps having to rethink things and risks of overexposure to uh, China from a manufacturing standpoint. 
with trade, with the coronavirus, do you see a long-term rethinking, particularly, say, on the part of uh, U.S. multinationals or U.S. companies that manufacture in China or European countries to really think more about geographical uh, dispersion, geographical diversification, and whether they want to have all of their eggs in one basket, so to speak? Almost certainly businesses are going to think about rejiggering and restructuring their supply chains and especially diversifying the supply chains. And there are three sets of factors here. One is the long-term factor, which is that China is becoming less competitive um, as a platform for staging production operations because wages in China are rising relative to countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh. The second is a medium-term factor. There is a phase one trade deal with the U.S., but the trade tensions are not by any means going away. And now there is a short-term factor, which is the coronavirus episode. So all of these three, the long-term, the medium-term, and the short-term factors are going to feed on and reinforce each other. But of course, at this moment, you won't see a huge amount of shift because uh, uh, changing supply chain structures is not something that can be done overnight. But I'm sure that businesses are looking at this very seriously. And once the uncertainty dies down, they will do that. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Cannabis has not had a great past year, but the lack of investor enthusiasm isn't slowing down M&A in the sector. Earlier this month, Cureleaf announced the closing of its acquisition of the vaping company Select. The deal makes it into the largest U.S. cannabis company by footprint. We spoke with Cureleaf CEO Joseph Lusardi after his speech at Cannavest, a cannabis industry conference. And we started by asking him about how Cureleaf was positioning itself for a rebound to get investors excited about the space. Yeah, sure. I think the actual fundamentals of the business are as strong as they've ever been. Um, you know, Illinois' adult use is off to a hot start. Massachusetts is picking up steam. I think you're going to see a number of big catalysts this year, including Maine being the second state to go adult use on the East Coast. You've got governors in New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, all talking about adult use, and you likely will see ballot initiatives in New Jersey and Arizona. So there are a number of catalysts on the horizon, and the actual fundamentals of the business are great, and you're going to see a lot of organic growth from Caroleaf and a lot of other U.S. operators this year. So I think the stock price will ultimately reflect the real value of these businesses as they see continued growth. So with regards to organic growth, I mean, obviously, I mean, Cureleaf has been uh, acquisitive, uh, obviously, the select deal and the grassroots deal. Where do you stand right now with grassroots and uh, where do you see the advantages there once that deal finally gets uh, done? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a transformative dealer for our company. It puts us into key Midwestern markets, including Illinois. They've got a strong footprint in Pennsylvania. So it's obviously a very good deal for our shareholders. And we're looking forward to closing that deal in the spring. We announced about a week ago that we cleared the DOJ HSR hurdle. And so now it's just up to the states to transfer the licenses. And we'll continue to look around the market to find opportunities that are accretive and uh, a, a good uh, places to deploy our, ca- our capital. We did a $300 million debt raise earlier this year. And so we've got a really strong balance sheet. And we're always looking to deploy that capital to make returns for our investors. Well, what kind of areas? So, uh, you know, this was a vaping deal, but what kind of opportunities do you see specifically, whether it's uh, what kind, you know, in terms of products or the type of companies that would make a good strategic fit for further capital deployment? Yeah, well, by the end of Q2, we'll operate in 20 markets, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we do bolt-ons in existing markets. For example, in Arizona, we have nine dispensaries. There are a number of other deals that we could look at to do bolt-ons in that market or similar types of things. Um, you know, we, there may not be any big deals on the horizon, but we're always looking for small opportunities that are accretive. When you look at the market, uh, Joe, specifically, uh, and just to kind of look at the demand here, I mean, there was a lot of talk about all these states uh, legalizing or decriminalizing to some degree. Uh, But one thing that we've seen in Canada is that the demand side didn't exactly materialize the way some folks thought it would, particularly I'm talking for recreational stuff. I'm just wondering, what do you see in terms of the demand side here uh, south of the border here in the U.S.? Yeah, the U.S. could not be more different than Canada. It's structurally an entirely different market. Our companies are vertical. We have the whole supply chain. The demand is incredibly strong. I mean, up and down the East Coast, our biggest problem is that we can't grow cannabis fast enough. The demand exceeds the supply. Um, You know, Illinois supply constrained Massachusetts. So consumers are showing a huge preference for regulated, taxed, legal cannabis. And that's not going to, you know, uh, that's going to continue for a long time. So we're very optimistic about the demand side of the equation. We've got to deploy capital to build capacity and capture that demand curve. And I think it's going to be a huge year for for U.S. cannabis and Kiralief. What states are most likely next to uh, expand on the recreational side? Where do you see the fastest progress right now? Well, as I said, New York is having a very public debate. Um, Governor Cuomo is trying to get it done through the budget. New Jersey is going to have a ballot initiative this fall. Um, I think Connecticut will likely follow suit if New York or or New Jersey um, do a bill. So, um, you know, there's a lot of public dialogue going on and a lot of recognition that cannabis has its rightful place in our society and should be taxed and regulated. So we're very optimistic about the dominoes falling here over the near term. Uh, Joe, you mentioned uh, that uh, financing that you uh, got, I think uh, that was back, closed back in December, uh, that syndicated term loan, uh, $275 million or so. Uh, this was kind of a big deal at the time because, I mean, we've seen a lot of banks sort of shy away uh, from cannabis uh, companies, cannabis-related companies. Uh, your company was kind of seen as kind of the first breakthrough to really secure sort of a, a big uh, sort of a, a slate of financing here. Do you think that we'll see a little bit more of that? And do you think we'll see it to the extent that the banks are willing to offer a little bit better terms uh, than maybe the percent that you got? Well, you know, from our perspective, we did upsize the deal to $300 million. And I think we have, you know, the best money raising apparatus in the business and the best credit profile. So that's how we're able to attract that investment. Um, I do think that debt markets will continue to open up. Um, you know, I want to highlight there was no warrant coverage in that debt deal. So it was straight debt. And I think that um, we've demonstrated an ability to deploy capital and get returns for our shareholders. And that's how we were able to pull that off. Let's talk about your demand, and you mentioned that continuing to accelerate. Where specifically? The, the, the American cannabis consumer, what are they gravitating to? What are they looking for as they learn about the recreational market, as they learn about the product? What are the, uh, the trends that you're seeing just in terms of what they're into? 
Well, I mean, let's just start with medical. If you look at Florida, you know, Florida is adding 10,000 patients a month. There's, you know, 300,000 patients in Florida. It's one of the fastest growing cannabis markets in the country. Um, medical markets are growing up and down the East Coast, New Jersey, New York. Um, and then the adult use market opens up a whole new class of consumers. We're seeing people come into our stores from all walks of lives. You know, cannabis experience, cannabis curious, people that can't sleep, people that have anxiety. I mean, cannabis is so um, has so many applications that the, the, the number of uh, patients and uses are, are really endless. Joe, do you anticipate that we would get any sort of federal uh, regulation, something that would sort of consolidate, I guess, all of this sort of state-by-state state, uh, legalization uh, anytime soon? I think the first thing we'll get is the Safe Banking Act, um, followed by a States Act, which, which makes it a state's right to have cannabis laws. I don't really see a full federal law legalizing cannabis anytime soon, but I think that we'll get progress at the federal level over the next 12 to 24 months. And that'll allow things like credit cards, big money center banks, and potentially cheaper debt to enter the space. And so all those things bode well for future you know, cannabis growth. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.